According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in uh, not not Proverbs 14, uh, Philippians. Still had this morning's notes sitting here. ready. This morning was fun. But uh, no, this evening is Philippians. It says uh, in verse 12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And uh, if you are overwhelmed by verse 12 and feel unworthy and unable, and uh, it's intimidating to work out your salvation, relax. Uh, God's the one doing the work. We just need to let Him and not interfere and not uh, hinder what it is that He's doing. And uh, that's what we're going to see here. And then uh, when we complete that, we'll be ready for verse 14 with do all things without grumbling or disputing. That is how you prove yourself, children of God, uh, blameless and innocent. And we'll deal with that as well. All right, before we get started though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking for our Father for His faithfulness, for His blessing on our time of study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight thankful for your grace and truth, thankful for this blessing, this opportunity. We pray that uh, your word would go forth effectively, powerfully, that it not be hindered in any way on the part of any human weaknesses, either on the speaker's behalf or the the hearer's behalf. Father, uh, I don't know if it's a migraine that's coming on or what it is, just feel kind of weird tonight. I know uh, uh, also uh, Lillian is fighting with a migraine. There's just a lot of conflict going on at the moment. So Father, uh, we're happy to uh, cast all these burdens on You because You care for us. Uh, we, you know the need before we even ask. And when we do ask, You provide exceeding abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think. So here it is, Father. We've asked. It's Yours. Do with it what You will. Glorify Your Son tonight. We thank You, Father, and we praise You in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Alright. Yeah, I normally get two to three migraines a year, and uh, I am long overdue. It has been almost a year now since my last one. So, um, anyway, we'll see what the, what else the Lord wants to do with that. Uh, we have a microphone ready to go, and we had an email question. Bill actually had three questions. What is our confession? As it says in Hebrews four fourteen, let us hold fast to our confession, since we have a great priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. What is that about? Well, same thing it was about in Hebrews 3.1, where we had Jesus, the uh, apostle and high priest of our confession. And it's the same thing that comes uh, about in Hebrews 10.23, when we're told, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So anyway, it's used in that way, and it's it's interesting to see these uses. Um, because we typically, when we think confession, we think First John 1, 9. Right? First thing that comes to my mind is when we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that is an application of homologeo, but it's not the only application of homologeo. And there are other confessions that need to be made 
uh, Timothy made the good confession in the uh, presence of many witnesses. When uh, they laid hands on him and prophetic utterance said that he was a pastor teacher and so he made the good confession in the presence of, of many witnesses. Jesus made the good confession in the presence of Pontius Pilate. And so, you know, if you see Jesus making a, a confession, well, that's not rebound. That's not First John one nine. Uh, something else is happening there. And so, we we see that the the broad range of usage that homilageo can have in uh, in that sense. And so, the short answer is our confession is the church. Uh, our confession is uh, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's the mystery of godliness that that Eliezer taught on that Sunday night. It's it's believers in the God of the Bible that say. Jesus Christ fulfilled what the Old Testament prophesied He would fulfill. That's our confession. And so we are believers in, in, uh, in Jesus Christ, New Testament believers in Jesus Christ, as opposed to you know, Old Testament believers. That's kind of a, a short answer to, uh, or maybe that's a long answer to a short question. But that's our confession. And Jesus Christ is the apostle and high priest of our confession. And that's... Uh, that's the nature of it there. All right, uh, also the testimony in uh, Exodus twenty five twenty one. what is the testimony? You shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony, which I will give to you. Sometimes it's used loosely. The testimony effectively is the Ten Commandments. It's the stone tablets that God's finger wrote on. Um, sometimes it's, it has a usage that's larger than that uh, because God will have plural testimonies and plural statutes and plural... Uh, laws and, and so forth. But for the most part, the testimony, especially the testimony that was kept inside the ark, is, uh, is the, the stone tablets, the ones that Moses smashed. They, they, uh, they, they're put in there. Along with the rod that budded and a pot of manna, those were the, the witnesses that were put in the, uh, in the ark. So, same word, by the way. The Hebrew word uh, for testimony is the word for witness. And uh, you need to have two or three witnesses, so they all got put in the ark. And there's only, uh, it is the Ark of the Testimony that is the same thing as the Ark of the Covenant in verse 22. Uh, there's the mercy seat, the two cherubim which are on the Ark of the Testimony. And that's the same thing as Ark of the Covenant. There's only, uh, basically when you see Ark, if it's not Noah with animals, it's the, the only other Ark anywhere in the, in the Bible is, is the Ark of the Covenant. So. And it's something sad too because uh, the Hebrew is different. The word for Noah's Ark is different from the Ark of the Covenant, and yet we they both get brought into English as Ark, which is uh, kind of strange to me. But. All right, so those are the email questions. What else do we have tonight by way of question? Okay, you're being nice. Okay, well, oh, Doug's got a question. All right, I was going to say you're all intimidated by my threat of a migraine. No, I'm actually not feeling that strange. We're okay. In Hebrews, Hebrews, we're talking about entering into his rest. Yes. What is the first thing we must do to enter into his rest? Well, if you're carnal, you'll never enter into his rest. So I think that, that's step one. It's like coming to Bible class. Step one is silent prayer, confess your sins, make sure you're in fellowship. So that was my I guess you could say get saved is step one. Right. Uh, confess your sins and be in fellowship is step two. Okay. But then I, and then I believe thirdly though you, you have to actively enter into his rest and, and that's, uh, that's a choice you make and that's, uh, that's where you claim the promises. That's where you stop your work even as God stopped his. And uh, so you deliberately 
You sanctify it and you bless it. That's how God uh, set apart the Sabbath day. He sanctified it and he blessed it. And so we do that with our thinking. We just say, all right, Father, that's it. I'm sanctifying and blessing my thinking. And it's, it, I'm resting in what you're doing because you're the one at work. I'm not at work. And, uh, and then with that as a mental attitude, you're there. You're in the Sabbath rest. I'm in the Sabbath rest. It's really that simple. Thank you. Uh-huh. All right. Bill gets our next question. Uh, in Scripture, where can we find uh, a description of uh, a shepherd's heart? You know, a servant's heart, you know. There is, uh, yes, um, many places. In fact, if you go to the website, and um, I mean, I'll show you. How about the Lord is my shepherd? You know, Psalm 23. How about John 10? Uh, I am the good shepherd. Uh, well, there's I mean, many more places for, related to that. More for like a, a pastor teacher. You know, to develop a shepherd's heart, to be, you know, be more of a you know a servant type uh, heart. You know, a decent. You know, I'm answering type. your question. It's the okay, same sorry. Thing. Yes, yes. The uh, uh, you know those shepherding passages, they spell out what the pastor teacher should be doing because that's the shepherd. I would also add Ezekiel 34 um, because that's a passage to faithless shepherds, and Jesus says, "Woe to the faithless shepherds of Israel." And he spells out why he's so displeased with them and what it is that he's going to do. So um, we taught a, a series on shepherding called Significant Shepherding Passages or S- Significant Shepherding Scriptures. And uh, there is a PDF there for Significant Shepherding Scriptures. And not only is there a PDF there, I believe we're going to find some audio files for Significant Shepherding I'll find those audio files too and send you an email because it was a fun class. In fact, I want to find it just so I can listen to it again. You know the first martyr was a shepherd? Cain murdered Abel, right? What was Abel? Okay, and uh, okay, so yeah, this sends me to the PDF and not the MP3. I will find the MP3 and uh, put that in an email for you. Uh, John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd leads down his life for the sheep. He's not a hireling. He's a good shepherd. Uh, the contrast between the shepherd and the hireling, right? Uh, even on the basis of that, fighting off lions and wolves and, and, and bears, you got David in, uh, in uh, 1 Samuel where he goes and he fights Goliath. He teaches shepherding principles there uh, about grabbing a, a sheep right out of the lion's mouth, you know? Um, yeah, there's several. Psalm 23, um, and they're going to be in that in that PDF document there. Okay, Robert. I'd also add the first short parable in Luke 15, the shepherd looking for the lost sheep. Oh yeah, the lost sheep and the and the shepherd there. Yeah. Um, so here's uh, here's the notes. Genesis 4:2, the first martyr was a shepherd. Uh, Genesis 33, Genesis 46, Psalm 23, 1 Samuel 17, Ezekiel 34, Zechariah 11. Oh yeah, Zechariah 11. John 10, 1 Peter 5. Those are the main ones. And then some shorter texts in 2 Samuel 12, Isaiah 40, Jeremiah 33, Luke 2. I'll email those to you. All right. That is a handy website. I appreciate that, having that available. 
All right. Well, let's get to uh, Philippians 2 then. Thank you, Chris. Philippians chapter 2. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, and let's uh, recognize that the just as and the uh, imperative are connected, that uh, this work out your salvation with fear and trembling, how is it they're supposed to do it? Well, just as. They've always obeyed. With fear and trembling. And so it's with fear and trembling that they will uh, work out their salvation. And, uh, and that shouldn't intimidate them because it's with fear and trembling that they've already been obedient. And uh, so uh, they, they should be able to do this as a matter of routine, as a matter of course, to keep on keeping on in, uh, in that respect. And, and this is almost what makes Philippians the anti-Corinth, right? In, in Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians, Paul had a long list of things they were doing wrong and he was telling them, you know, quit doing that, stop that, do this instead. Uh, you know, quit sleeping with your mom. That's, that's a no-brainer. Uh, other things in Corinthians, you know, clearly are not compatible with the will of God. But with the Thessalonians and with the Philippians, these Macedonian churches were marvelous in the sense that where's the rebuke? Where's the correction? Where's the things they were doing wrong? Instead, he's complimenting them for what they're doing right. And then he's saying, keep it up excel still more, right? And uh, just as you've been doing this, keep doing it and work out your salvation with, uh, with fear and trembling. And so that's uh, what we see here. And so as we've uh, proceeded through the outline, this was uh, what we were looking at in point one, how the, the so then bridged it across from Jesus' example to the Philippians' application. Under point two, we saw the, uh, the dative of means. This is the, the means by which to, uh, to do this is uh, the fear and trembling. So we've been dealing with that, talking about the keep on working out. I do have uh, that fixed, that repaired slide, though, that it was wrong on Sunday. want to have a chance to, uh, to highlight that tonight. With fear and trembling is not only the manner in which they will work out their salvation, it is exactly the manner in which they have always obeyed. And that's the just as. Just as you've been doing this, do that. And uh, so uh, we link that together. We talked about uh, three different kinds of salvation or four different kinds of salvation, phase one, phase two, phase three. All right, And I think we're all in agreement that... Uh, Phase one salvation about believing in Jesus and receiving eternal life, that's not what's in view here. That uh, they're already saved, and they've been saved, and they've been already obeying. They've been already walking with fear and trembling. They have already been pleasing to the Lord. And so he's not telling them to, to save themselves or to get themselves saved. And the fact that this imperative is, is left up to them to fulfill tells you we can't be talking about phase one salvation. But it is left to consider, are we talking about phase two salvation, which is how most people take it, or uh, could it even be looking at phase three salvation, which I think uh, commends itself in the context here as the better approach. Or we might even span uh, both phase two and phase three, and that's what I've concluded. And when I rewrote the point, I wanted the, the rewritten point to reflect that, that really what we're doing is we're spanning from phase two to phase three in the scope of this one one passage here. So seeing Philippians 2.12 as an application of phase two salvation is obvious. You can't work for phase one salvation and you can't accomplish it or achieve it. This is an achievement term. Um, but working for our own phase two salvation makes more sense um, 
Although even there too we have to stop and ask ourselves, am I capable of making this happen? Am I capable of saving myself? Uh, or uh, when I recognize that God's the one that's working in and through me, then I can relax about that. Uh, beyond that though, the comparison with Jesus where the Father exalts Him and bestows on Him a name, that, provi- that contrast, that comparison, remember the whole thing starts with the so then in verse 12 that takes the kenosis doctrine from that, from that kenosis hymn and brings it over now to application for, for the Philippians, for us, and so forth. So the, uh, the exaltation of Jesus, that now gives us an understanding that really we could be looking at phase three salvation here. When it says work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it's saying um, lay up treasures in heaven. It's saying be productive in such a way that your phase three salvation will be amply rewarded, will be abundantly supplied. I think there's other expressions in the New Testament that speak, speak about that, that, uh, that you will have the ample entrance into the kingdom, say, will be abundantly supplied unto you and uh, other expressions of that nature. So I think we have a contextual basis then for Philippians 2.12 for the salvation reference, the term saved or salvation, work out your salvation, soteria, that we have a context for uh, the Philippians 2.12 salvation to span phase two and phase three in our application, in our thinking. All right, does that make sense? Questions on that? Make sure because the slide read differently a week ago when I first put it up there. So, um, all right, if we're clear on that, we can proceed. Uh, the idea of keep on working out, it is present tense, so I must apply it today, tomorrow, every day, continuously. It is a continuous imperative. It is present tense. It is active voice. So, you and I have to be the subject of the verb. We've got to be doing this. This is up to us to do it. We keep on working, we keep on producing. And the recognition that it's not just busy work that doesn't achieve anything, it's actually a verb of achievement. That uh, it speaks, uh, you have, it's a compound, right? Kata plus uh, ergo or ergodzomai. And it's, it's intensified. It's not just working and not getting anything done. I've had plenty of days like that, we all have, where you work, 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 and then at the end of the day you look back and say, what did I really do? Did I do anything today? And it just seems like you can work, work, work and not accomplish anything. And that's common to the human experience, and that would be the simple verb of ergo or ergodzomai. But this is a compound, kat ergodzomai, and it really does emphasize the achievement and where it's rendered as achieve, accomplish, do. And uh, we took the time on Sunday actually to pull up this uh, color wheel and to see the different ways that it is used in the New Testament. And uh, we saw that really, almost in every case, the emphasis was on the production. What does it produce? What does it result in? Uh, what does it bring about? What does it accomplish? What does it affect? There are gifts, ministries, and effects, and here we're looking at the effects. It's God who's at work. God does these effects. So that's, uh, that's the emphasis there. Now, when we move on to the third main point, under main point three, we freely admit that uh, assigning the production, achievement, accomplishment to us for any salvation seems ludicrous until we learn that it is God Himself who is at work in us. Okay? If I'm going to stand up here tonight and preach phase one salvation, you have to do it. Good luck with that. 
I would I'd struggle to make a solid case and you wouldn't believe me anyway. <laughs> Even if I tried to sell you on it. The idea that humans can achieve phase one salvation just defies all of Scripture. Um, and I think the same thing too when it comes to phase two and phase three salvation. If I'm facing a sin temptation, can I save myself from that sin, sin temptation? Or do I need the filling of the Holy Spirit? It says, walk by means of the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It doesn't say, go save yourself and keep yourself from fulfilling the lust of the flesh. It says, walk by means of the Spirit. It also says that if we walk in the light as He is in the light, then uh, we will have fellowship with His Son, and the blood of Jesus Christ will keep on cleansing us from all sin. So there's a phase two salvation provision right there. And again, I'm not the one doing it. God's doing it. His Word is doing it through us. With humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your soul. So phase two salvation I think there too we want to recognize God's got to do the work, His word's got to do the work, His spirit's got to do the work um, that if it was just up to us it wouldn't happen any more than phase one salvation would happen. Any more than phase three salvation would happen. But when we see that it's God at work within us then we can be more relaxed about fulfilling this active voice imperative and say, okay God, we've got this. <laughs> say, okay God, uh, you're working? Alright, I'm with you. Let's do it. I'm your fellow worker. I'm your co-worker. And so um, there I go. I'm going to run with endurance. The race is set before me and this is going to happen. Not because of me, but because He's the one working. The one working in you is God. The one working in you is God. And this is where uh, as I mentioned before, for the achievement we had the compound. Here we have the simple energeo. He's the one that supplies the energy. He's the one that supplies the work, the power. God is working. And uh, on Sunday we looked at energeo related to that. God does the work. That's not a license to be lazy. That's not a license to just be a slug and to sit around and do nothing and then blame God when nothing happens. Okay? Uh, no, He does the work but we are volitionally on board, participating, walking, learning, growing, experiencing everything that His work in us produces. And so uh, I'm, I'm not going to repeat the slide or go back through these verses. I hope, um, I hope they were loud and clear Sunday morning as we were, as we were dealing with them there. Um, gifts, ministries, and effects in 1 Corinthians 12, 6. The effects is the Father's business. God's doing the work. Even if we're employing our gift and even if Jesus is leading us in ministry, it's still the Father that's producing the work in and through us. Likewise, Ephesians 1.11, God does all things after the counsel of His will. Uh, Ephesians 3.20, He's able to do far more exceeding abundantly beyond all we could ask or think. Of course, Philippians 2.13 is our text tonight. Colossians 1.29, which I don't remember offhand. Um, and then uh, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, I remember. Colossians 1.29. I mean, we should just have these so saturated in our thinking. Oh yeah. For this purpose I also labor, striving according to His power which mightily works within me. So here's God working mightily within you. The power of God is mightily working within you. So get on board. Labor, striving. Okay? Just get on board and work with it. Okay? You know, I can imagine it's like anything else if, uh, you know, if... uh, you're uh, surfing or, or um, what else could you do? Or you're bicycling or, you know, I mean, if, if, uh, if you're bicycling, wouldn't you rather be going downhill instead of uphill, right? I mean, if you're going downhill, isn't there a power 
called gravity. Yeah, that's still a thing, right? And, and gravity is a power and it's working for you as long as you're going that direction. <laughs> okay? Because, hey, why not? You know how fast you can go if you're pedaling downhill? Because you got your own power, but you're really adding that on top of, you know, the gravity that's pulling you downhill. Okay? As opposed to turning around and going up the hill. In which case, the power of gravity is working against you and uh, it is not a pleasant experience. See? Or, you know, surfing. I imagine there's a wave, there's power in the waves and, and go with it. <laughs> okay? Don't, uh, you know, if the waves are going this way, then go that way. I don't know. I've never surfed, so I'm probably wrong. Um, but if there's a power that's at work, like God is at work in you, go with it. All right? Be a fellow worker. Engage. Get on board. As, uh, again, Colossians 1.29 um, you can labor to the point of exhaustion because uh, guess what? You're using His energy anyway. The purpose For this purpose I also labor, striving according to His power which mightily works within me. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13 it's the emphasis is the Word of God does the work. Receive it not as the opinion of men, receive it as the Word of God which also performs its work in you who believe. It performs its work in you who believe. Okay? That's powerful. You know, non-scriptural information doesn't do that. Just facts, data, gnosis doesn't do that. I tell you, uh, you know, who had the highest batting average of any left-handed third baseman in the National League? Who cares? (laughs) All right? But there's somebody who knows that. And you can look it up and you can find out who has the highest batting average of any left-handed third baseman in the National League. Great. And just knowing that doesn't change your life. Knowing that fact does nothing for you. And you know it, but it's not something alive in your soul. It's not going to dwell richly in your soul. It's not going to spring forth and bear fruit. But the Word of God does. It will, it can, if you let it dwell richly within you, it will spring forth, it will save you. It is able to save you. It is able to perform its work. So 1 Thessalonians 2.13 is marvelous. I think it goes well with James uh, James 1 where that talks about with humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your soul. Alright, so God is the one that's working. Recognizing of course that there was a prototype for this in the Father working through Jesus. That uh, when Jesus walked this earth um, the Holy Spirit of course came upon Him as a dove at the moment of His baptism. But beyond that also the Father was at work in Him. So I think when uh, the darkness fell on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That the repetition of my God, my God was precise. It was specifically with reference to God the Father and God the Holy Spirit that turned their back, shrouded him in that spiritual darkness, and, uh, and he alone accepted the, the wrath of God for our sin. Um, but prior to that and apart from that, the Holy Spirit was working in Jesus and the Father was working in Jesus. And it's very clear in 2 Corinthians 5 that God was, God the Father was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. God was in Christ. Isn't in Christ a special doctrine? I think it is. I think in Christ is a marvelous positional truth reality. And when we study in Christ, what we find is in most places in Christ is talking about Church age believers that are baptized by the Holy Spirit, sealed into the into Christ, 
where we are the body and bride of the Lamb, where we are united positionally with the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. That is an amazing doctrine. I wish more believers were excited about positional truth doctrine, about being in Christ. But in Christ actually preceded the church age because the Father was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself. And so on that basis then, I think we can see the Father in us, in Christ, as though God makes an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So we have a pattern there. All right. Now, with respect to God working, God's at work today. God's at work right now. God the Father's work operates in dual mode. God the Father work, God the Father's work operates in dual mode. Our will and our work. And I, I'll tell you which one's harder. <laughs> okay. Our will and our work. God is at work in you both to do or to will and to, and to do. The will comes first and then the doing. The attitude has to precede the doing. Thinking has to precede being, has to precede doing. And we'll talk about this. What good is it to force you to do something against your will? <laughs> okay. And how does He work in our will? Does He change our will? Does He force our will? Because He works in our will, how, how is that reflected? How is that expressed? How is that manifest? Because clearly He's able to do that which pleases Him, but does it please Him to coerce us? No, because God loves the cheerful giver. So how does He foster goodwill? How does He foster positive volition? How does He foster that without forcing that? See, and this is the marvelous secret, I think, to ultimately what makes God God and us not God, okay? Nobody else could possibly even think of starting an idea of doing something like this. Even Satan. Satan's the, the wisest creature ever, and, uh, and he falls short. He in his corrupted wisdom, he in his satanic insanity said, I will be like the Most High God, and he's not even close. Because he can't handle all of the varieties of angelic and human volition. Even within the realms of angelic volition, there's a house divided against itself, and that, I think that bugs Satan to death. So God the Father's work operates in dual mode, our will and our work. The term for will is the verb thelo. T-H-E-L-O, thelo. Number 2309 is the Strong's Concordance number, thelo. It speaks of a will a desire, even just simply a wish. Something that you want. Remember well, we, we often make the point that God will supply all our needs, not all our wants. That's important. okay? But this is a want. And what, what does God want? What is God's will? What do you want? What's your will? Ultimately speaking, the, the Bible really doesn't distinguish between a want and a will. That uh, They are expressions of personal volition. That's what a want is. That's what a will is. And so uh, we have thelo. We're going to see the noun thelema. The noun thelema is the noun, is the noun for will. The verb thelo is the verb to will. Okay. And then there's, uh, which has 207 uses by the way. You want to look at all those? 207 uses on will. And it's, it's clear. God has a will. 
but so do we. Okay, and that's why we have to imitate Christ and say, not my will, but thine be done. Uh, every angel has a will. Every human has a will. We, we are the, the, the uh, created realm with volitional capacity. And uh, whether animals do or not is debatable. Some people defend it, some people don't. Um, I, I, you know, I'm not going to get into it tonight. Uh, but they don't clearly have... And there's never an example of, of animal disobedience in the Bible. There's never an example where the will of God wants an animal to do something and the animal decides to do its own thing and defy God and, and whatever. When in Every, universal, absolutely, there is no exception to this. When God instructs an, an animal to do something, it does it. Uh, or a plant, or a planet, or a star, or some aspect of creation. If he wants the red seed apart, whatever it is, if it's the physical universe, including plants and animals, there's no disobedience because there's no volitional capacity of will. But with angels and humanity, there is. And that's, uh, that's huge. All right. So God is at work to will and to work. So when God is working on our will, when God is working on our will, um, can that be resisted? When God is working on our will, is it compulsive? And I've already answered basically, no. Okay, God does not compel because compulsion doesn't please Him. When God pursues His own will, ultimately He is pursuing His own good pleasure. And that's, uh, that's the best definition we can find anywhere of sovereignty. He does that which His soul pleases. And uh, <clears throat> we don't want to fall for the world's definition of what an absolute sovereign tyrant might do. Because uh, you know we, we we approach it with with the carnal mindset to begin with, we got to separate that from God. All right, so we have fellow and we have energeo, and anytime we fellow, anytime we energeo, it's best that we acknowledge that uh, we should uh, be sensitive to what God's doing, so that we can be cooperative, not um, uncooperative with the plan of God. Now. If you ever want us to do a, a more comprehensive study on fellow, you need to blend it with thelema. And you're going to have a very inductive, comprehensive study on the will of God. In fact, um, so this is subpoint one then, the tandem of fellow with thelema. Thelema has 67 uses, so add that to the 207 you're already looking at for thelo. Um, the tandem of fellow and thelema supplies an inductive study for the will of God. And uh, we've done that study, by the way. You can get that study on the website. You can get that study in, in uh, basic doctrinal studies. It's the category that we called thelematology. Thelematology is the study of the will of God. And, uh, and, and we're expected to know it. We're expected to live it. We're expected to prove it. And if we don't, we're a fool. Ephesians calls us a fool. It says, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And so um, to me... Um, the will of God is, is a foundational study. What, knowing God's will becomes significant that particularly as church age believers that we are adult sons with full legal standing and full adult privilege. That uh, God doesn't treat us like uh, babies in the nursery. Okay, That was Israel under the law. Israel under the law was a baby in the nursery. And Galatians taught us that, remember? That uh, you know the slave kid and the king's kid when they're both babies in the nursery there's no functional difference between them. <laughs> It's just one of them is going to grow up to become the new king and the other one's going to grow up and still be a slave. But when their baby's in the nursery, their baby's in the nursery. Okay, But that's not us in the church age. We are adult sons. We have Old Testament, New Testament. We have the mind of Christ. 
We're not under law, we're under grace. And so as adult sons, we should be the most uh, ever keyed in to the plan of God, to His plan, to His will, what He would have for us in the overall plan, what He has for us specifically, day by day. What is the will of God? And so I would encourage you to, uh, to pursue that study. So we have Thelo and Thelema, and, and the recognition as you do that is you're going to find very quickly that uh, sometimes the will of God is not um, pleasant. Sometimes it's not, it's, not, uh, it's not enjoyable, right? I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Well, who, who wants to be there? That, that, that's no fun. But notice He's walking us through it, okay? We're not just sitting there forever. He brings us through it. And His rod and His staff comfort us, and He feeds us, and He gives us rest, and, and He knows what He's doing. And so even when, when the will of God brings us through sorrow, when you've suffered for a little while in the will of God, well, what does that produce? What's the consequence? What's the outcome? How does He work all things together for good? We, we need to learn these things. Uh, they're, they're foundational. And I think failure to learn these things just leaves us in the, in the spiritual nursery. We just end up as, as, as children, selfish brats in the Christian walk. We end up expecting everything to be handed to us and, and complaining every time uh, God expects us to do something tough, you know, whining about it like a, I don't know, like a whiny kid from Parkland, Florida that's on the news all the time. I mean, man, that guy's just obnoxious. But is that an illustration? Is that an illustration of, I think it is, of what happens when Christians don't grow up? Okay? Let's be adult sons in the Christian walk, adult sons and adult, adult daughters. All right. And so we have this tandem. And as we study this tandem, though, and here's where I think this verse is going to take us beyond what philematology did. Okay? The will of God should never be a theoretical study apart from the practical study of the works of God. See, because this verse links will and work. This passage connects the thelema with the ergon, with the work. The will of God should never be a theoretical study apart from the practical study of the works of God. And I think all too often we do that. I think all too often we approach studies, doctrinal studies, just on a theory basis and we don't get to the practical. So uh, we're great on theory and terrible on, on, on practice. And, and the will of God, I mean, if, you, if all you're studying is in theory, well, wait a minute. The will of God is, is fundamentally applicable to, to all of us. We are saved unto good works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So there is a, 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 a practical side to any will of God study that we're going to pursue. So, I mean, it's one thing, it's like if you, if you understand God's will and then don't do anything about it, James 1 calls that insanity. That you're self-deceiving. Do not be hearers of the word only who delude themselves, but be doers of the word of God. And so uh, we should never uh, make the will of God study just theory only apart from the practical study of the works of God. So what is His will and what is His work? What's He doing now? Jesus said that, my Father is working until now, I myself am working. Ooh, that made Him mad. Okay? And I think in John 4.34 addresses this, I think Ephesians 1.11 addresses this. 
in some interesting ways. It's not just Philippians 2.12 or Philippians 2.13. Those are, that's not the only verse in the Bible where we have a, a, a fellow term linked with a, uh, an ergon term. Okay? Ergon, ergo, ergometrics, what is that? Ergo, ergon, I forget. We, we got some English words that talk about um, ergonomics, right? An ergonomic chair, an ergonomic, uh, anyway, ergonomics, that's an English word. It comes from this Greek. Uh, John uh, 4.34. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And um, this marvelous woman of the well passage, this uh, great eternal security uh, chapter that we learned about Sunday night. And um, well, when this was, uh, he kind of wrapped up what he was saying to her, and then she went running back into town to to get all those men. She she knew several of them, <laughs> and she brought a lot of them out to get saved here in uh, in this chapter. Anyway, so um, when his disciples finally show up, they'd gone and I don't know how successful they were. Uh, I, I don't imagine they had a very warm welcome on the part of the uh, the, the, the merchants of the town. But uh, So his disciples come in verse 27. They were amazed that he'd been speaking with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? They weren't, they weren't ready to challenge Jesus on this issue. So the woman uh, left her water pot and went into the city, and so she's gathering all these men. And um, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And it's curious to me because he's going to hit them with the same doctrine I'm giving you tonight. That's the will of God and the work of God. We should be, uh, we should be absorbed in both together. It should be a it's, it's God's dual mode of operation should be our dual mode of operation. So I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? <laughs> you know, they have a little quick, they huddle up amongst themselves and they, they're suspicious immediately of, of one another. I mean, constantly, you know, figuring somebody snuck out and brought him a snack before we were done shopping. You know, who did that? Would John or Thomas or which one of you guys? Judas, somebody, somebody snuck out here early and brought him a snack and, you know, like the teacher's pet, bringing him an apple early. And, but he stopped him right there and he says, you guys, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. There's Thelema, there's will. And it's not my will, it's his will. It's the will of him who sent me. If somebody sends you on a mission, whose mission is it? Well, you're the one sent, but who sent you? Right? Do the will of him who sent me. So if someone sends you on a mission to do something and you get there and decide to do something else, is that going to be pleasing in the mind of the one who sent you? So my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. To accomplish his work. And it might not be what we expect. And it might not be to our liking. And it might not be, uh, you know, we may not even know it for years to come afterwards. Oh, that's what God was doing there. Okay, thank you, Father. And so there's that tandem of will and work. He goes on to say, um, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? 
You know, is that an expression they have? Uh, evidently it was an expression. Some kind of a saying that they were familiar with. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white for harvest. You know, you've got some kind of an idiom which says, uh, eh, we got time. <laughs> and Jesus says, let me fix your idiom for you. The time is now. The fields are white for the harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal. You guys are falling behind. This work is already, this harvest is already coming in. So that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. Anyway, so he gives them this sense of urgency here. And, and I think we get that. When we study the will of God, when we study the work of God, I think it gives us a sense of urgency. We, we become like Jesus at age 12 and say, I must be about my father's business. I think that uh, born again believers, you reach that point and you start to get convicted of gifts, ministries, and effects. You say, Lord, here I am, send me. I want to get busy with it. I know that uh, the, the time in front of me is shorter than the time behind me and I've already wasted enough. Let's do it. Let's do it now. And we get that sense of urgency. How about Ephesians 1.11? It's another text whereby we have um, a, uh, a harmony between these expressions. Galatians, Ephesians, Ephesians 1.11. We have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to, notice, His purpose. God has a purpose. He knows what He's doing and why He's doing it. And he doesn't do anything for no reason. He, he has every reason for what he does. And then see what else it says here. So according to his purpose, and what does he do? He works all things after the counsel of his will. It's a study on the will of God. It's a study on the works of God. And this verse likewise links them God works all things after the counsel of His will. God has no works that are contrary to His will. Makes sense? Because His will is perfect. If He had a work that was contrary to His perfect will, then it would be an imperfect work. And it would be, you know, how can God operate outside of the will of God? So, we have a will of God study, and uh, we don't want to separate it from the works of God study. God works all things after the counsel of His will. So, put that verse, you know, on a piece of paper, put a line, and then have this on one side, and then have our, our verse tonight on the other side, Philippians 2.13. And, and just read them back to back over and over and over and over again and remind yourself, okay here, God is at work in me and everything God does is according to the counsel of His will. God, it's for God's at work in you, to will and to do of His good pleasure. And the, uh, God's work, uh, God works all things after the counsel of His will. So where does that leave you then in, in what you do? Where does that leave me in what I do? If I'm, uh, if I'm considering doing something out of the will of God? Well, <laughs> not what God's doing. God's not considering that because God doesn't ever do that. Everything God does is in His will. He works all things after the counsel of His will. And so uh, this, uh, this too becomes a blessing for us. Now, if, um, that's why we've got to start with the will. If our, sub-point three, if our will struggles to be conformed to God's will, then our work will likewise fall short. If our will struggles to be conformed to God's will, 
then our work will likewise fall short because you can't separate them. If our will struggles to be conformed to God's will, you know, it's not always easy to say, not my will, but thine be done. Honestly. There are many, many circumstances and conditions and stages of carnality. There are moments where not only are are we carnal, but we're very carnal. (laughs) Okay? We are fervently carnal. We are passionately carnal. We are, you know, sometimes, you know, we're five times carnal, you know, five kinds of carnal in five different ways. And it just, it, it just gets worse and worse and worse if we feed it. The longer we spend in that darkness gets worse and worse and worse. And so there are conditions where we know the good to do. We just don't want to do it. And we know what God wants us to do. We know what, what we should do. We know what the Bible tells us to do. And yet we, uh, we have a struggle to conform our will to God's will. Because that, that thing within us is, is, is strong. And we listen to it and we feed it and we like it. And so uh, this then becomes a problem. And, uh, and clearly, if you can't line up your will, if you're going to insist on keeping your will on a different track, then you're already carnal. So when that opportunity comes along to do the physical sin, you're going to do it. Of course you're going to do it. Or you're going to want to. Or you're going to try to. Or the sin of the tongue, or the overt sin, or the mental attitude sin. Because it comes back to this, uh, to this attitude. Romans 7.15, Paul described this. Don't think that this is, well, if I'm... If, I, if I'm saved long enough, then I'll eventually grow out of this. Well, I don't know how long you intend to, or what, what, what your time frame is for that, or what scriptural basis you have for that. Because when Paul wrote Romans, how long had he been saved? When Paul wrote Romans, how long had he been an apostle in active ministry? How many books of the Bible had he written? How many churches had he founded? I don't think Paul was a weak sister when he wrote Romans 7. But he freely confessed that he was really grappling with an attitude problem. And he found himself losing more often than not. He found himself doing what he didn't want to do. And yet he knew what he wanted to do and he knew what he didn't want to do and yet he found himself, his will was, was uh, not even his own anymore at that point. So Romans seven fourteen. we know that the law is spiritual but I'm a flesh sold into bondage to sin. And yes, we're believers. Yes, we're, sl- we're delivered from the slave market of sin, but we still live in this fallen body. And until we get rid of this fallen body, we can go back to that slave market anytime. All day, every day if we want to. We can go carnal. We can feed our lusts. For what I am doing, I do not understand. And, it's a, and, and it really is. You're looking at this thing, this makes no sense. I've got to be out of my mind. And, and, and you just you, you try to wrap your mind around it rationally and you can't. It's irrational. Your sin addiction is irrational. Carnality is irrational. So Paul says, I don't, I, I don't understand. I am not practicing what I would like to do. And you know that phrase there, like to do? That's Thelo. That's Thelo. He's not doing what he would will so much for willpower. <laughs> okay, um, I am doing the very thing I hate, and uh, this is uh, this is what happens. And I think even you know we get good at it. We do our sins. We convince ourselves we're having fun. You know, 
while we're puking up the last six pack we drowned or whatever, and we're 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 bowing at the at the porcelain idol and 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 just retching and uh the whole time thinking, well, this is a this is a a party, right? Aren't we having fun? And uh you know, your your roommate has a little sarcasm there and says, uh, we're having fun, right? And uh and yet you're doing the very thing you hate. And uh that that just makes it worse. <laughs> now Satan's got a got a guilt thing over you that he can use. You start hating yourself for what you just got finished doing last night. And so uh so that hate becomes another bullet in his in his ammunition. He uses that against you too. But the very thing I do not want to do, again, fellow, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. Just be honest about it. This is sin. I shouldn't be doing this. And so, uh, yeah, we get it highlighted here in verse 15 and verse 18 and verse 20. Notice, um, so now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Put that verse on a piece of paper on the other side of the line from Philippians 2.13. So God's at work in me, but guess who else is at work in me? (laughs) There's a sin nature at work in me. And that sin nature lives there 24-7. God, well, He abides when I abide in Him, but um, when I'm carnal? All right. So uh, sin is at work, and sin dwells in me. And I know that no good thing dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present, but the doing of good is not. And here's the disconnect. Here's the disconnect. The willing is there, the doing is not. It's a breakdown. We want both if we're in harmony with what God is willing and what God is doing. If we struggle to be conformed to God's will, then our work will likewise fall short. Verse 19, for the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. All right, so there's a principle. But then there's other principles we rejoice with as well. Anyway, if you want more on that, we taught Romans. The Romans 7 is there. Um, Some people will use this as their excuse, as their cop-out to say, well, it wasn't me, it was just sin that dwells within me. Yeah, but you let it. You choose this day whom you will serve. So quit serving that sin nature and start serving the Lord. Because He too is working within you to will and to do His good pleasure. So which one are you going to be a fellow worker with? Which one are you going to be a partaker with? You want to bicycle downhill or bicycle uphill? (laughs) Okay. That's the, the volitional bicycle metaphor. How about that? All right. 2 Thessalonians 3.10. Okay, now this is a totally different context, but it is a link between willing and working. And uh, even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, if anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Is this a work problem or is this a will problem? It's the will, it's the will problem. Yeah, this is a willful rebellion. This is a believer that uh, can work. It's, he's able-bodied. He's able to work. He just doesn't want to. And we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Well, that's not the will of God. 
Show me a scripture verse that says, uh, you know, go around the church and butt into everybody else's business. Okay? You're hardly qualified to do that. You've got to get a beam out of your own eye first. Then you might have a capacity to take a speck out here and there. But um, in any event, if you're not willing to work, it starts with a will. It starts with a will. If you're not willing to work, then it's, it's a will issue. And that's what it comes down to. All right. Well, we'll come back on Sunday and we're going to see it's God who's at work within you to, work, to will and to work of what? His good pleasure. His good pleasure, not ours. It doesn't say that God is at work in you to make you happy. <laughs> God's at work in you to, for your sake. It's not even for your sake. It's for Christ's sake. For the sake of His beloved Son. God's at work for His good pleasure. His druthers, His preferences, His pleasure, His joy. Not yours. And then the sooner we figure that out, I think uh, the better we're going to be at being His fellow workers. Because all too often we get busy about our joy, our good pleasure. And then we're not His fellow workers anymore. We're, we're bicycling uphill again. Anyway, we'll deal with that because that's subpoint D, subpoint E, and, uh, and then we'll be ready for grumbling and disputing. Uh, under main point four in verse 14. So that's how close we are. All right. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for this night. I thank you for your truth. And Father, I pray um, that we humbly accept what your word says, that uh, we stop resisting and insisting on what we think it ought to say or what our, uh, our selfish perspective wants it to say. Father, it says what it says. It's your good pleasure, not ours. And uh, we need to learn how to take pleasure in, in what pleases you and uh, not just please ourselves, Father. And self-pleasure, selfishness, the whole self-promotion, all of that, Father, is imitative of, of Satan, not imitative of, of our Savior. So uh, we know that doesn't please you. Uh, open our eyes to all these wonderful truths that we might, uh, we might be fellow workers on board with what you're doing and uh, employing the energy that you supply. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.